Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church, and uh, it's an honor to be with you here in person and also online. If you're joining us online, glad to have you here. Well, I want to tell you, in case you don't know, it's been the honor of my life to be married to Jen for about almost 23 years now. I know I don't look a day over 30, so it's hard to imagine how this could have happened, but indeed that's the case. Marriage is an amazing thing in that uh, once you get married, and as soon as you get married, you realize some things about yourself that you really never knew before, right? Uh, and if you've been married, you know that's true. And one of the things that I realized early on um, is that we have a uh, we were raised with and we became people or products of an entirely different set of expectations of how we functioned with one another. Meaning this, uh, one of the first nights, uh, first weeks, months that we were married, uh, Jen got sick. And so in the middle of the night, she's throwing up. And so I've decide it's my job as the new husband to make sure that in sickness and in health, right? Like you don't just sleep through that if you're a young husband, right? You get up and you help. And so I went in to help her in the bathroom, kind of move her hair from the toilet as she's throwing up. And she looked at me with one of those looks like, what in the world are you doing in here? Like, get out. Like, let me be sick alone, right? Like, let me be sick alone. And I'm like, you don't be sick alone. Like, people aren't sick alone because in my family, you're not sick alone. Someone takes care of you through your sickness. But in her family, it was like, hey, there's the couch. There's some Advil. We'll check on you in a couple days and hope things work out, right? And so here's what I learned, that there's a whole different set of expectations. And they're kind of like these multicolored pens I have up here. So I learned that we have uh, an expectation, I'm going to set it here to hold it for me, an expectation around sickness. I also learned that on the weekends when we kind of come to, um, we kind of come to, to debrief or kind of settle down. Like I might prefer sometimes to be alone where sometimes generally like, who can we have over? I'm like, well, who do you want to have over or who can we have over? Because those are two different questions, right? And so expectations around how we recharge are different because of just how we've been raised. So I'm going to add that one over here. Um, expectations about punctuality were different too, believe it or not. Jen always loved being late and I was always, no, that's not true actually. I think it's the other way around, right? So if we're supposed to be there at six o'clock, like I'm, I'm like six o'clock is like six or 6.15. She's like six o'clock is 5.30 or 5.45, right? So it's a totally different set of expectations around that. And then we also have different expectations around cleanliness, right? You know which, go, which way that goes. <clears throat> I don't even need to tell you about that one, right? And so here's the deal. We walk around with all these expectations that were built into us, kind of close to our heart. And I had these, and these were mine that I had, and they were close to my heart. And when we got married, we, they kind of came in conflict and in cooperation with each other. The beautiful thing would be, and it would be great if as soon as we started dating, that my expectations and the, the way that I was raised was out front like this. But the truth is, almost all of these things, instead of being out in the front of my pocket, are actually in it. <laughs> and you can't hardly see them that way, right? And that's exactly what we experienced, is we didn't even know that we should talk about how should we function when she's throwing up in the middle of the night. We just didn't even think about that because it wasn't present. It was, wasn't there. And the reality is many, if not most, of the most powerful expectations that shape us are given to us through moments of silence in our families. They are rarely communicated verbally. The most powerful expectations are the ones like this. If you're a, a woman or a young woman now, if you ever remember walking out of your room, you're dressed for the date or dressed for church, and your mom gives you the look about the outfit you're wearing. She doesn't have to say anything. You go back and change. If you've ever been watching a family movie, and all of a sudden, 
a scene comes on. And someone scrambles for the remote quickly and pauses or power off or fast forward or whatever, and nothing is said, but everything is communicated. Have you ever been in a family where your parents have argued and you have felt the weight of that moment, but nothing is said about it? And then at dinner time, we eat together. Everything is communicated about how conflict should be resolved. That the most powerful expectations about how humans relate to one another are actually communicated in our families of origin in silence, not in spoken word. And I would argue that the same is true for our faith. That the way that we relate to one another in relationship is also in many ways the way we can, we can relate to our Heavenly Father. That the expectations we have around how God relates to us and how we relate to Him are often most powerfully communicated in the silent expectations that we have for Him and that we think He has for us. If you have ever sinned and confessed your sin and felt like God is silent, does it not reinforce to you, you have not been good enough? You haven't read enough or prayed enough or been devoted enough. If you've been praying to God about your future clarity, about what you should do when you grow up, and you don't hear from God and you begin to fill in the gaps of maybe, maybe there's something wrong with the way that I'm approaching this. Certainly, the silence must mean something. Or even worse, even worse is sometimes we think we are meeting God's expectations. <laughs> this is even worse. We think we are being devoted enough. We think we are being holy enough, but others aren't. If only they would live differently, and we begin to live in a judgmental kind of way toward other people. What a terrible place it is to live in a world in which expectations in relationships are unverbalized, and what a terrible relationship it is to live when you feel the weight of expectations not a relationship of love. And as we walk into the, the passage of Scripture we're in this morning, I want to say this about how, how we're going to begin. And, and that is this, that following Jesus, following Jesus isn't about living up to expectations. Following Jesus isn't about living up to expectations. It's so much, it's so much better than that. And what John, an early follower of Jesus, actually gives us, when he took time to write down this letter, he gave us a picture of what it actually means to follow Jesus and the tension that exists in the relationship we have with ourselves, our expectations, and God. And so I want to invite you to turn, if you have a Bible with you, to the little book, it's actually a letter in, toward the end of your Bible called 1 John. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible toward the very end of your Bible. You might miss it if you go too quickly through it. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you, by the way. I'd love to have you take that home with you. Uh, you can also open up Version or any other app you've got to um, check out 1 John. Chapter 2 is where we are going to be here this morning. So 1 John chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 28. We're going to go into chapter 3 here for a little bit. And so here we go. Let's read this and let's see what John has to say. I'm going to pause along the way and just make some comments and hopefully um, bring some clarity, not confusion, to what John is trying to say. Here we go. He writes in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Let me pause it right here at the beginning. Look at a couple phrases with me. He says, and now, dear children. First of all, again, a, a, um, a loving warmth to John's writing. 
He isn't pounding anything home to anybody. He's inviting people in. He says, dear children. And he says, continue in him. This is a very important starting point for me in understanding what John is writing. He says, continue in him. What in the world does that mean? Here's what I know, and here's what you know, that every relationship has a starting point. It has a starting point, and it, this is what that means. If you've ever been, um, if you've been married to someone for a long time, and like 10 or 20 years later, they get together with a high school or a college friend, and all of a sudden, they turn into like a 13-year-old. <laughs> like, what in the world? Where did this come from? Because the relationship started when they were 13, and it picks up in continuation from that moment. That every relationship has a starting point. How it starts is likely how it will continue unless it's massively disrupted. But relationships are like that. So, for example, this is why the um, office um, Christmas party can be awkward. Because if you have a boss, the relationship begins with you being my boss. You're not my friend. And now you want to put me in a social environment, and we're having a, a dissonance, a discontinuation, because parties are for friends, work is for work people, you're a work person, and now I'm in a social friend thing with you, and so I'm not continuing. The same thing works in inverse order. If you have a friend you've grown up with, and you want to start a business together, and one of you is a 5149 partner, and you're the lead in that, now all of a sudden you're managing your friend, and that can get weird, because you're not continuing in the relationship. Every relationship has a starting point, and that shapes the direction of the relationship. And so what John is saying is, dear friends, continue in him. That's very important for where he goes, so that, he says, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So it begins to paint a picture of there's going to be a time when Jesus returns. There's going to be a future in which Jesus is coming back. This is Christian teaching throughout the centuries. Jesus taught this, his followers taught this, and he kind of gives a picture to, to early believers to say, guys, don't just live in the moment. Remember that Christ is returning, and in that space, I want you to continue in the relationship and how it began. And the question is, of course, how in the world do we do that? Well, he goes on in verse 29. He says this, If you know that he is righteous, then you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. This verse, verse 29, is a verse that expresses exactly what I thought Christianity should be when I was growing up. It was never verbalized to me this way. It was handed to me as a silent expectation that the most um, devout Christians are indeed the most devout. They are the ones who do the right things the most consistently. They are the ones who pray the most. They're the ones who read the most. They're the ones who serve the most. They're the ones who do righteous things the most. Verse 29 you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. This was an expectation handed to me. Sometimes I read into it. Sometimes it was handed to me. And these are expectations that we still even have today. You may hear in common lingo, um, when people are in the dating world, for example, stop me if you've heard this one before, if you're thinking about dating someone and your parents hear who you're thinking about dating, they might say something like, that, oh, she's a good Christian girl right? Oh, he's a good Christian guy. What does that mean exactly? 
Should we talk about what the assumptions behind morality and ethics are? Because that is a heavy weight of expectation, isn't it? Oh, you're going to get a job at that business? Oh, it's a good Christian company. What does that mean exactly? Right? That there are expectations that we get handed, especially if you're young, that you will have a certain unspoken moral and ethical code that will drive your behavior and your functioning so that you can grow up under the weight of expectations that looks like Christianity, but is actually a code of ethics and a burden of morality that puts unspoken expectations into your pocket so that you can grow up under the weight, not of love of Christ, but of duty and obedience to a moral and ethical code, doing what is righteous. This is what it seems like John is saying. Everyone who is, does what is right, he says, and then look what says, he says next, the end of this verse. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Born of him, okay? All right? Born of him, right? So look at this with me. This is so important to me right now. That this is where the relationship actually begins. If we talk about continuing, right? Are you with me on this idea that he's continuing, right? This idea that relationships continue, they have a starting point and they continue. Where in the world does Christian relationship begin with God? Does it begin, does it begin, listen, does it begin when God looks out on you and looks out on me and he says, listen, oh, that person, they're moral, man, they're, they're good, they're ethical, they have a high sexual standard, they have a high business integrity standard, they're going to be amazing people. This is where I want to start the relationship. I want to start the relationship on the basis of their future ethical conformity. They are going to be amazing people who will live an amazing example for the world. That is where I want to start the relationship. John says, no, no, no. Here's where it begins. Look, everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Like you're born into this family, that it is this gift of God that you are adopted in, and the relationship starts as a family member. That, which is why John is so excited, I think, when he writes the next verse. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He explains it this way. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He's saying, there's, look for a minute, this amazing love that God has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. This is where the relationship begins, that God looks at and he says, oh, um, you're sleeping with someone before marriage? I would like you as my child. Oh, you've ripped people off in business? I'd like you as my child. Oh, you're a perpetual liar and manipulator? Come on into the family. Oh, you struggle with arrogance, thinking that you do better than everybody else because you're a hard worker. Yeah, why don't you come into the family too? The, the irony of this is painful if we stare at it, that God has lavished on us a kind of ridiculous love that says, I'm going to start a relationship with you, not on the basis of your ability to do all these things, all these expectations that have been hung in your heart, but I'm going to start a relationship with you. I'm going to lavish on you. I'm going to say, you know what? You're going to take all this stuff that you do, set it aside for a second. You are my child. This is where the relationship with God begins. This is where Christianity begins. Not about filling out expectations, but being invited to and understanding them, invited to be 
a child of God. And that is what we are. And then it's almost like he pauses in verse 2. He says, dear friends, now, like we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. It's like he's taking a breath to realize, I, I've, I've crossed over. Like the line has is, is passed. I'm now a child of God. But we know that when Christ appears, he goes on, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And then he goes on to say this in verse 4. And everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, I know that is true, and don't you? And before we even walked in here, you could have said this is true. Anyone who sins breaks the law, certainly, and that is lawlessness. There is the law, you broke it, lawless, right? There it is. Simple as that. And I know that's true, and you know that's true as well. But here's, here's the truth. For the Christian, what John just wrote, for the Christian, the law is no longer their master. The Christian does not have to hold the law up or come under law as its master. Let me give it to you this way. Uh, many of you know I grew up in the Caribbean in Barbados, which is, someone had to do it, right? So I had a friend named Paul, and his dad owned a Hilton Hotel there. Um, uh, and when we were walking through that one time, there were some signs around the property about what to do and what not to do, because it was a nice property. And I think, I have a vague memory, I think one of them was like, do not walk on the grass in this section or whatever. Well, Paul and I, like, for Paul, this is kind of his extended backyard, is the, the Hilton area, like he was always there, right? And so we're playing soccer together, and the ball goes onto the grass that says, do not walk on the grass, right? And so in that moment, here are two young boys, and maybe 10 years old, whatever. I see a sign, and he sees a sign, right? I see a sign that's about the law. Like, the law says, don't walk on the grass. What does he see? He sees his dad, right? His dad is behind that sign. The heart of his father is behind that sign. And so he has to think twice. Do I want to? And I'm just like, will anyone see me? <laughs> and he's like, dad. You see what I'm saying? And so for the Christian, what, what John is introducing to us here is all of a sudden, you're both going to look at the law. You're both, everyone's looking at the law. What you see when you look at the law matters. If you see the heart of your father, that's going to change everything about what you do. And if Paul violates the law, he hasn't actually come under the authority of the law where I was. He has come under the authority of his dad. And his dad gets to figure out how to deal in the most loving and clear way with his son. For me, I'm just living under the law, right? Because I'm not in relationship with the lawgiver. Now, what John has said is, you have now moved from over here to over here. And so when you see the law, anyone who breaks the law is lawless, sure. But you're also a child. And this changes, totally changes the way that we engage with our doing, our action, our behavior, and our lawlessness or our lawfulness. It simply does. He goes on. And he says, you know, verse 5, that he appeared so that we might take away our, he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. This is exactly the illustration of Paul and me, that he took away the weight of the law and the weight of expectation on you and on me. He goes on, verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This verse 6 introduces a real challenge in experience. Like, the truth is, when I read this verse when I was younger, I'm like, ooh, see, I don't know if I fit there because I keep on sinning. I don't know if we can, if you feel that. I don't know if you feel the weight of that. 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, but I'm standing here like, I keep on sinning. And that may be your experience too. Like, I sin, you sin, we all sin for ice cream kind of thing, you know. Like we're, we're all in that moment, like, I am not nearly as good as I want to be, and you aren't either. And so we're in this space of like, oh boy, I want to do right, but then verse 6 is like, well, maybe I'm not even in God anymore. Like, I've just done the thing that I don't want to do, so what do I do with that? How do I, how do I handle this? What does that look like? And this is the tension that, that we're in, and Paul, uh, John tries to clarify it in verse 7. He says, dear children, again, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, meaning the weight of the law to oversee the Christian is now gone. So don't be led astray that you are under the weight of law's expectations. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Whew, a ton of stuff there, to which I'm going to say there's a ton of stuff there. Here's a simple, my simple take on it. That John is saying, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. That Jesus came to take away the weight of expectation, the weight of the law from you, so that when you see the do not walk on the grass sign, you need to realize that you are not under the weight of that expectation anymore, as if that owns you. You are now in a space where it's the heart of your heavenly Father, who still might say, please don't walk on the grass. But you respond or relate to that out of a relationship with a father, not out of a relationship with the law, which makes every difference in the world. And here's why that is. The reason for that is, is because we are no longer have a relationship to duty and obedience, but a relationship to a loving father. Here's what I mean by that. Let me push that further. That, let me, I begin this way. I said this, that following Jesus isn't about living up to expectations. It isn't about living up to expectations. I'm going to put it this way, though. Following Jesus is about living into God's love for you, not up to expectations on you. Those are two completely different ways to see the world. Following Jesus is about living into God's love for you, not up to, his exp or not up to expectations on you. A few years ago, Tim Keller gave an illustration, which I love. He said this. He said, imagine a small bird in a nest, and the bird falls out of the nest onto the ground with a small little thump. Just a ways away is a fox that hears the thump and decides, here's an opportunity for lunch, and begins to run toward the little bird. The bird, unable or, unable or unwilling or unsure of what its capabilities are, decides that the safest and best thing to do is to scurry back into the tree from which it fell into a little hole, if you will, in the bottom of that tree, which indeed provides safety. Doing that, acting in its own self-protection and self-will, is exactly what a bird should do. There's an expectation in that bird that it wants to stay alive. There's something that's been wired into it that way, which is great. When I think of the bird scurrying back into the tree, here's what I think I realize, is that when we do things like that, when temptation comes and we run from it into the tree, when trouble comes and we run into the tree, when fear and anxiety and anger come and we repent and run back to the tree, when dishonesty hits us, when we are far from our spouses, when we are closed away from people that we should be open to, when we are selfish, when we should be selfless, and all these things when we kind of fall out, 
The default can be scurry back to the tree, scurry back to the tree, scurry back, get safety, confess, and go back and go back and go back. That is living under the expectations of the law. If that bird never lives into its full potential, if that bird never begins to develop the mentality that I can fly, it will never have freedom to engage the world the way that it was meant to engage the world. That living into its identity and calling not only saves the bird from harm, but gives, its, gives it wings for a future. That living into who you are as a follower of Christ is saying, I am not just a, going to be a product of the expectations on me. I do not need to live up to God's expectations. I don't need to live up to any expectations, but I do get to live into my calling as a child of God. I get to live into a future and a hope that is different than my present with freedom and care. Now, let me ask two questions behind this. First question is this. Which voice do I hear? Which voice do you hear? Do you hear the voice that is calling you to live up to or the voice that's calling you to live into? The voice that's calling you to live up to expectations is the voice that is going to lead you to be asking questions about your own obedience, about your own faithfulness, about your own desires. And sometimes those are good things. I'm not against our conscience. I'm not against the Holy Spirit speaking to us in those ways. But the voice that calls you to live up to results in a life that is sucked free of joy, that is sucked loose of freedom, that comes with it a weight of burden. It also brings along with it a speed of judgment, a speed of harshness. For those people, if only they would work harder. Those people, if only they weren't so lazy. If only they came to church. If only they stopped sleeping around. If only they would. If only they would. It reveals that the voices that we hear are actually voices that are calling us to live up to expectations that we were never designed to meet in the first place? Or are you listening to a voice that's calling you to live into the reality that you are a child of God, that your relationship started with God, not on the basis of your works, but it started because God lavished ridiculous grace on you and said, this is where this thing is going to start. And we're going to continue in this for as long as you're willing to keep it with me. We're going to continue. It started on lavished grace, and it's going to continue in that space. Which leads me to my last question, that is this. Which starting point do I rehearse? Which starting point do you rehearse? When you think about your own relationship with God, what stories do you tell around it? Do you tell the times when you came to faith when you were young and you memorized Bible verses and were, grew up in a Christian home and always went to church Sundays and Wednesdays and you were consistent in this and faithful in that and you struggled here and there, sure, yep, but you kind of went back on the straight and narrow. What is the starting point that I rehearse? Or is there a starting point to your relationship with God 
that deep within your soul reverberates a lavish story of you realizing for maybe the very first time, my goodness, wow, God in his ridiculous grace saved me with all of my arrogance, with all of my pride, with all of my brokenness. I realized maybe for the first time in my life, in fact, all of the good deeds that I had done were actually in the way of me actually coming to faith in Jesus alone. What starting point in my relationship with God do I rehearse to let the story of the gospel of Jesus warm our hearts so that as we walk, we walk into God's call to be his children, to love one another and to love him. And so, if I can say it again, I'll say it this way. Following Jesus is about living into, not up to. I do not. Oh, if I could reach into each of your hearts personally, and even into mine, and rip out any vestiges of a religion that tells you you must live up to. Oh, man, I wish I could. Because it's poisonous. It works in the short run. The bird comes running back to the safety of the tree. But the bird never flies, never feels freedom, and never understands that she and he are called to be free children of God. What story do you rehearse? Which voice do you hear? Because you are called not to live up to, but to live into the love of God, the lavish love of God. Thanks for listening this morning, guys. I look forward to next week. We're going to tackle this idea of the love of God in an even more personal way. Look forward to having you back next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to pause in the season of life that we're in. To just breathe for a little bit. And maybe to remember that all of the striving that we are prone to do and all of the expectations, verbalized and unverbalized, that we are so prone to want to meet. Are broken in their power over us. I pray that we would not go back to the mastery of the law and expectations over us, but that we would live in the freedom that comes with being children of God. And if we're in this space this morning where we have yet to experience that kind of relationship with you as our loving Heavenly Father, uh, that's the kind of conversation that we would love to have here this morning at GPC. And so I pray you'd give us opportunity for those kind of conversations even this morning. Father, we thank you for your care for us, for your love for us, and I pray that you give us the courage pause to ask these questions and to engage in your lavish love for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we